Welcome to WVYC's Perspectives. This is an up-close look at the students, faculty, and administrators who make your college unique. This weekly show shines a spotlight on the programs and people here at YCP. This week's host is Jeffrey Schiffman. Welcome to WVYC's Perspectives, and today we are going to be talking with Sheila Walker. She is the Executive Director of Afro Diaspora, and she's also a cultural anthropologist and a filmmaker, and we're going to talk about that in a, in a minute or two. But first of all, thank you very much for coming. We appreciate you being with us. Glad to be here. What brought you to be to the to the path to where you are as a cultural anthropologist? Well, I see it as having begun in Chinatown, in New York, Manhattan's okay. Chinatown. I'm from Jersey, and I had an aunt who lived in Chinatown, not because she was Chinese, but because she could find an apartment she could afford. And um, she didn't have kids. She didn't have television. And so when I would go to visit her with my grandparents and my parents, they would talk about adult things. And I had my own personal television screen, which was her big window over Chatham Square in mm, Chinatown. There you go. And it couldn't have been better. And so I would just watch these Chinese people. I'd never seen any people who looked different before. I was fascinated. And actually, there were several cultures under my window. There were the uh, there were some homeless men who then at that point were called bums, <laughs> and they had already asked us for some money to buy some coffee. I'm not sure it was coffee they wanted, but anyway, um, as we were entering my aunt's apartment, and then there were the tourists, <laughs> and so a bus would stop in front of my window, and the tourists would get out to look at the Chinese people. So I could see these three cultures under my window, and. Uh, it was the, my consciousness of this began when I was about four when I was learning how to read and write. So I was, there's a lot of writing in Chinatown. And so I recognized it as writing, but I couldn't find the words I knew. And I thought, why are they hiding, cat, dog? Where are my words? <laughs> <laughs> I'd never heard another language, and you know, why don't I understand these people? <laughs> so I was just fascinated by this other culture. And um, and I was fascinated by all those Chinese restaurants with the naked ducks hanging by their necks. And I as wonder- as was I as a kid, because I also grew up in the metro area, metro New York area. Okay. Still, still one of the most fascinating things in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I wondered how do you eat that? <laughs> and I wished I had a Chinese friend. I always wanted a Chinese friend who would invite me home, so I could see what does it look like inside a Chinese apartment under those pagoda roofs in Chinatown. Do they have the same kind of furniture that we have? Do they dress the same? What do they do with the ducks? And I never had a Chinese friend, so I never got to see how they lived. And that incubated my curiosity about how other people lived. And that curiosity just stayed there, and it expanded beyond the Chinese people. And I wanted to see how other people lived on the planet. And my uncle had told me that the Chinese people lived on the other side of the world, so I wanted to, well, how do I get to the other side of the world? (laughs) I'm from Jersey. I used to swim in the Atlantic. I tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> I could never swim far enough. So uh, as, you, as you went on, you really got interested in, in going back to your roots, uh, your African roots. And you, I, I found it really interesting that you've looked at that and said, okay, what happened? Where did these people go? Because you, you would go out in multiple countries and, and see people that looked a little bit like you. What, talk about that a little bit. Well, I went to Bryn Mawr College at a time when um, it was important to have a token Negro. <laughs> so I was the last only colored girl in a Bryn Mawr class. I was the token Negro in, my, in the class of 66 at Bryn Mawr. And um, that was a culture shock for me. 
I had always grown up in integrated neighborhoods, so it wasn't the fact of white people. It was rich white people. <laughs> that was new And to you me. were the only one. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, w- that was new to me. Um, plus, you know, I went to a public high school that was very diverse, and Bryn Mawr was hardly diverse. Plus, um, the f- I remember my first English composition class when we were told to analyze the text. Nobody ever told me to analyze a text at East Orange High School. So obviously there was a new way of thinking about different kinds of stuff that I had to learn. That was the first place where I heard people say things like, well, I was going to tell her this, i.e. So words, <laughs> expressions that I thought were just part of written language, they were part of the Bryn Mawr, or Bryn Mawr speak. So, uh, and we had to learn Greek hymns to goddesses, to <laughs> Pallas Athena, for example, the goddess of the Greek goddess of wisdom. It wasn't a bad thing, but it was totally different from East Orange, New Jersey. Uh, so there I was, that was my first anthropological experience to be at Bryn Mawr, and um, it was plantation. <laughs> Yeah. The the president had a garden party for the, the new students on the lawn of her big house. And we were served by the maids and porters. So Bryn Mawr, being kind of a southern version of the north, had a whole cadre of maids and some porters who served the young misses. And so Bryn Mawr was really, you know, I thought, what is this? Gone with the wind. Wow. So close to Jersey. So it was a very uh, novel experience <laughs> for me. And it was never bad. Nobody was mean to me. Um, but it was really very different. And uh, let's see. I needed a social life that Bryn Mawr didn't provide. And so I managed to meet some African students and go to some African parties and learn some new dances. Uh, but Bryn Mawr also, so it was, it was rather alien. But it also, now I'm writing about this, I'm writing a memoir, and Bryn Mawr obviously is a significant piece of my memoir because it, uh, first of all, let me know for the first time, people for whom the world was where they lived, people who, you know, went to rants for the weekend, usual stuff. And I thought, well, I want to do that too. How do I get to do that? If I'm at this school, I'm supposed to learn how to do that stuff. Um, and so Bryn Mawr had, a, had a, a, a junior abroad program in France. I signed up the day the application came out because I just wanted to go places. You know, I didn't get to China, but France, that's okay. That's someplace else. I wasn't mad at being there, but I just knew that there's more, and this is not enough, and I need to find out about more. Um, and I called my father, and I said when I was accepted, guess what? I'm accepted to go to study in France. And his first question was, of course, how much? (laughs) How much is it going to cost me? And I said, no, it's not going to cost more than my scholarship, my loan, my summer job, my my other jobs. Uh, So he said, okay, great. Then I found out about another um, exchange program, the Experiment in International Living. It, it still exists. It has a different name. I think it's the School for International Studies. It's in Vermont. And um, so most of their, they had summer exchanges. You, you would get to live with a family and travel around in a country, mostly in Europe. But that year, there were some African, there were three African countries, Morocco, Nigeria, and Cameroon. 
Well, I chose Cameroon for the challenge. They, they, I, I went to the French-speaking part of Cameroon, I and I figured if I'm going to go to Africa, I might as well further complicate this thing <laughs> and go to a French-speaking country. And I lived with a wonderful family in a wonderful uh, place, the capital of a kingdom. And this was the era of Tarzan. So Africa was primitive. Africans ran around, you know, half naked, doing bizarre things. Well, I didn't find that. I didn't find that at all. Um, my first event was going to uh, a ceremony, and I thought, oh, great. They're going to have on lion skins and feathers and play drums. Well, no. The men had on suits, and <laughs> they didn't play drums. They gave speeches. They were, And it was a... <laughs> for a, a local official who was going to France for some sort of training. So the Africa I discovered was not at all the Africa that Tarzan had told me about. In addition, I had a stepmother um, during my adolescent years, and she worked for the perfect organization to allow me to go to Africa and do all the things I've done since. We weren't, you know, we weren't always the best of friends. She was my stepmother. I was an adolescent. But she worked for the American Society for African Culture, and it it's the goal of that organization was to create links between newly independent Africans. Uh, Ghana became independent in 1957, the first African country to be uh, independent of European colonialism, and um, AMSAC was created around then. So it was supposed to create links between Africans and African Americans, let people in the United States know about Africa's creation contributions to the creation of the United States and um, to just create links of various kinds, artistic, cultural, intellectual, social, between Africans and African-Americans. So my stepmother organized um, receptions and conferences and things, receptions for heads of state of African countries like Kwame Nkrumah of of Ghana, Sekou Toure of Guinea, uh, Namdi Azikwe of Nigeria. So for me, I had this counterbalance to Africa, what Africa was like. So on one side, we have the media's version, Tarzan. On the other side, here are these African heads of state. So I went to a conference on Southern Africa. I met people who would become presidents after that. And there, you know, I'm I'm 19. (laughs) So I began to understand that although at that point, this was the early 60s, African-Americans had not, we had learned that Africa has nothing to do with us and it's better that way because Africa is primitive and it's embarrassing. But I learned about this other Africa that was different, that was diplomats, um, that that was about fancy receptions. It was about, I met, for example, uh, Sir Alex Kwesansake, who was the first African president of the United Nations General Assembly. That was pretty big to me. So I thought, I need to know more about these Africans. You know, they have something to do with me. I don't know what it is, but something. And so I went to Cameroon. I lived with this family that was just amazing. Their perspective was Pan-Africanist. They asked me things like, do you know Sparrow from Trinidad? Uh, Maybe not. Do you know Pelé from Brazil? Um, No, I don't think so. And what does that have to do with me anyway? Those are foreigners. Well, for these Africans, Pelé... Sparrow and I were part of their extended family. So they made me know that there was an African diaspora. I didn't know who was in it, where it was yet. But the other thing, that wonderful thing that happened while I was there was that an anthropologist, a French anthropologist, came to lunch one day. And he was studying the history of the Bamoon kingdom. So the people I was with were the Bamoon. And um, when I went there, in contrast to cities I knew in the United States, there were two museums, 
there was a royal family, and of course, royal families have to have palaces. Right. Yeah. Gotta have palaces for <laughs> your royalty. <laughs> right. And we didn't have that in East Orange, New Jersey. No. No palaces. Um, so the, fa- the father of the king, when I was there, his father had created a writing system for his language, had written books in his writing system, had created schools to teach that. And so that was my introduction to Africa. That was pretty sophisticated as compared to, you know, what I knew of the world. And so one of the things I learned was exactly how ignorant I was about the world because these Africans who were supposed to be not so sophisticated were so much more sophisticated than I was. And they knew so so much more about the world. They were also just easily trilingual (laughs) with an effort maybe quadrilingual or quintilingual. And I was struggling with my French. <laughs> okay. So that was the beginning of my learning about the, the larger world and my role in the larger world. And that made me want to know, okay, who are these other people like me out there that I don't know anything about? And thanks to Bryn Mawr, I studied in France the, after um, leaving Cameroon. And there I met people from, more people from Africa, so Cameroonians there became sort of my continuity, but I met people from the Caribbean, people from uh, not only Africa and the African diaspora, but what I learned was that Europe's not so white. (laughs) So France was the source of my meeting other people from the world, but mainly from Africa and and the African diaspora. And that um, I went to my first black bookstore in Paris, Plaisance Africaine. <laughs> and we didn't have those in East Orange, New Jersey. Uh, and the, once I, I met a guy at the bookstore who said, Mar- Malcolm X is coming next week, and we're going to have a reception for him. Would you like to join us? And the we was people from Africa, the Caribbean, me, other people from Africa and the African diaspora. So that was when the diaspora began to make sense. And I should say something about that word. Everybody Mm. may not know that word. And it's really simple. Dia, like diameter across. Spora, like the spores on the back of a fern. The the, uh, seeds are on the back of a fern. I did not know that that was the origin. That's it. And so when the the fern waves in the wind, the spores fly away and get planted. And um, so it's about the sowing of people of African origin around the around the world. I, I think I think for a lot of Americans, uh, a lot of us uh, uh, here in the United States, we think of African Americans or Africans that they were brought over with a slave that they were brought over, and and I would say that that probably is the majority of the blacks that came to this country. Yes. Um. So their their origins here in the United States have a very uh, evil side to them true uh and and so how do you get across that message that there's also other things that were part of that yeah well i think uh, and that's a really important point because africans didn't come to the americas voluntarily right mostly um so uh the americas the problem with the americas and we're still living this problem is the creation of (laughs) of the modern americas modern being beginning 500 years ago when europeans came and decimated the uh, original inhabitants maybe involuntarily with disease but decimation is decimation and um, voluntarily by uh, cruel treatment um 
Then uh, seeing that the workforce was diminishing rapidly, the Europeans decided to replace the indigenous uh, workforce with Africans. So beginning of the enslaving of Africans, 12 million, more than 12 million Africans were brought to the Americas to work, to build the Americas. And that's, not, that's hardly a good origin story. No. <laughs> um, and slavery was not so, not so good any place in the Americas. It existed all over the Americas. There's no place exempt from that version of the story. However, uh, it's really important, I think, to reinterpret or re-look uh, re at exactly what the dynamics were of what I am not going to trivialize by calling the, sl the, the slave trade. Uh, that's like trading baseball cards. I rather see it as the commerce in African lives because the most expensive commodities traded in the American world were human beings. Mm, so, absolutely. You know, what a commodity, okay? But we, if, we're, if we were taught anything about slavery, and we probably weren't taught much, uh, Africans just came to do the, the stoop labor, labor, the unskilled labor, and most people do unskilled labor. So that's not totally false. But... Africans were also specifically chosen for their knowledge and skills. Europeans wanted to create new societies in places they didn't know, and they needed skills they didn't have to do this. Agriculture, for example. The, um, most of the Americas where Africans were enslaved, most of the Amer those parts of the Americas are tropical. Europeans wouldn't know tropical agriculture. Right. They weren't from tropical places. Um, so that the agriculture of most of the Americas is really based on African knowledge. Cowboying in the southwest of the United States, the style of uh, transhumance, the movement of animals from place to place, is West African, as opposed to British. I, I did not know that. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. really interesting. Yeah, because European animal husbandry wasn't like that. Well, you don't have to move them. They, right. they don't have that, you don't have that land that right. we do exactly. have here. Yeah, so uh, when we think about the cowboys, <laughs> it wasn't like we were told. And it seems that the Lone Ranger, for example, the model for the Lone Ranger was an African-American who had an indigenous sidekick, but he didn't call him Tonto. He didn't call him <laughs> stupid. <laughs> but so I think it's important, you know, you have to acknowledge the horror because that's true. Absolutely. But I don't think that just dwelling on that is as functional as dwelling on and beyond the horror. Then what happened? What about the triumphs? What about the contributions? What about, um, so rice culture in the Americas is African. The rice brought to the Americas was domesticated in Africa. It wasn't Asian rice as we were led to believe. Gold culture. Gold culture in the Americas initially was indigenous, but when the Portuguese and Spanish discovered all that wonderful bling-bling of the indigenous people, where did they go to get somebody to mine the gold? What the Portuguese called the mean of the Gold Coast, now Ghana. And so they brought Africans who, who had been, the, the Portuguese were trading in gold with people from that area from the mid-1400s. And they, uh, so they called the area uh, the, the mining coast. And now there's a, uh, a place in Ghana called Elmina from the Portuguese, Costa uh, uh, da Mina. So when they discovered the gold of the indigenous people, without the indigenous people anymore to mine it, they went to the Gold Coast and they got Africans they call Negros Minas, mining Negroes. <laughs> and in Oro Preto, uh, where the gold rush was too in Brazil, in the state of Minas Gerais, 
they there was this wonderful saying <laughs> that the uh, presence of Negros Minas in gold mining and in gold mines brought an almost magical luck for finding gold. Mm. Luck or expertise? Expertise. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So Europeans called parts of Africa for the 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 commodity um, that the uh, wealth producing commodity that came from that part. So there was the Gold Coast, there was the Rice Coast. Um, and other technologies like cowboying, <laughs> for example. We don't learn that part of the story. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very important to learn that part of the story. Also, I think it's important to see the Americas as a whole and to be able to compare the United States with other places in the Americas. I mean, for me, it was being outside of the U.S. that I, you can't see yourself, right, unless you have another point of reference. So it was from traveling elsewhere in the Americas that I could see elements of U.S. culture, of my culture as an African-American in the United States. Um, for example, uh, one of the phenomena that is characteristic of some elements of U.S. African-American culture is getting happy in church, receiving the spirit mm. when the music gets hot <laughs> in traditional churches. Well, I didn't know what that was about. When I was eight, I went to a church, and I saw these ladies jumping around and saying things and stuff, and I thought, what is that? And I was told, well, the spirit moved them. Well, I wanted to know, who's the spirit? Where did the spirit come from? What's the spirit's name? Why does the spirit act like that? And then I went to a ceremony, an Afro-Brazilian religious ceremony in Brazil, in uh, Bahia, in the state of Bahia. And there, there's the obvious continuity of Yoruba religion and Fon religion from West Africa, from Nigeria and Benin. And one of the characteristics is that the spiritual beings are so present in the human community. There's not this, you know, church is not on Sunday morning at 11, okay? There's always a relationship between humans and the spiritual. And so on ceremonial occasions, the spiritual beings can come into the bodies of the humans, especially initiated humans. And what do they do? they dance. They dance a choreography of the universe. So Yemanja, who's the goddess of the ocean, her dance is like the waves, okay? Um, uh, Shango. Shango is in charge of thunder and lightning. Well, his dance is pretty vigorous. Mm, I would imagine, yeah, it should <laughs> thunder, be. Thunder, right? Uh, so once I saw that, I thought, oh, I get it. I saw similar gestures, and I thought, uh-huh. So the spirit we're talking about in the United States, I'm not saying it's Yoruba, um, because the Yoruba were not a people who came to the United States in big numbers, but I am saying that there is a, a continuity of spiritual understanding, spiritual style, that the, the supernatural is not someplace else. <laughs> There's a close relationship, and that helped me understand what was going on at this church in Newark, New Jersey. So without going to Brazil, I wouldn't have gotten it. I wouldn't have understood us. I know that you uh, do some filmmaking uh, and have been involved in filmmaking. How has that allowed you to spread your message a little bit further than, than maybe just you know people talking to you? <laughs> yeah, well, oh, I'm so glad I got into filmmaking, and I'm glad I didn't know all the details before I did it. <laughs> I, you know, I go places and people, somebody said, well, you should, you, you got to take bring a, a camera. camera. Yeah. Sure. You shouldn't go to those places and not bring back images. All right. So I bought a camera and I just started taking 
images of wherever I was. And um, I was, so I have images of a lot of places. I have images of places I don't think I went to. And then I dance into the image like, oh, I guess oh, I did yeah, go I there. there. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, someone I knew from the United Nations asked me to make a film on the global African diaspora for the uh, United Nations Remember Slavery program. And I said, well, I think that's a terrible name for a program, first of all. <laughs> <clears throat> and then they were they Not asked Not good me to, marketing. <laughs> right. They, they asked me to do a, t a talk on that theme at the United Nations. I was honored. But I thought, how am I going to talk about Remember Slavery? Celebrating was the title they gave me. Celebrating Triumph or something like that. But I thought it's really hard for me to put celebrating after slavery. But I had shown a film that a colleague and I made. To, I had shown the film to some adolescents in Brooklyn. And Brooklyn, I figure, well, that's, that's Africa and the diaspora concentrated. And this is a film on the global African diaspora that a colleague and I made for UNESCO in Paris. And um, we have scenes, for example, of Africans in India and you know, sort of some unknown stuff. And so one of the adolescents, after I showed it, I said, well, comments. And one of the adolescents, I wish I knew his name and I wish I could find him, because he said, it looks like our teachers left out some of the story. They didn't tell us the whole thing. And I said, oh, really? What did they leave out? Well, a lot of things, he said. But he said, for example, they didn't tell us that Africans were rulers over non-Africans in India. Why didn't they tell us the good parts of the story? Why did they just tell us the bad parts? Well, that kid gave me a worldview. And other kids, I mean, once he started, other kids, all males. They all, catch, they, they all caught on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why didn't they tell us? <laughs> so they were saying, we want to learn something else. We want to learn another version of the story. And so when I gave this talk at the UN, I had to say, look, the Brooklyn adolescents told me <laughs> that they don't just want to know about the horrors and the atrocities, but about the contributions, the um, triumphs. And so my issue began to be, uh, first of all, I just need to talk about what did, where are people of African origin in the Americas and elsewhere in the world? And so what did they bring? What did they do? Uh, what did they bring in terms of knowledge? Uh, what did they bring in terms of culture? How did they add to national cultures? For example, when I was being told, first by my classmate at Bryn Mawr, and then by my graduate student professors at the university, my, <laughs> my graduate professors at the University of um, Chicago, where I was trying to do a doctorate against some opposition, <laughs> Those guys insisted that we, U.S. African Americans, had no culture. Uh, and at the same time, actually before that, the United States, starting in 1956, had a program of cultural diplomacy. And there's a wonderful book that's called Satchmo Blew Up the World. And it's about the beginning of this cultural diplomacy during the era of Eisenhower, in which jazz musicians were sent around the world as representatives of U.S. culture the representatives of U.S. culture. And what was that about? Well, elsewhere, you know, we in the United States, right, we're all about democracy, but people in other countries said, yeah, but you got these people you're not treating very well. How is that democracy? And so, well, let us send you some jazz ambassadors so that you'll know that uh, <laughs> we love African-Americans and we love African-American culture and we're sharing it with you. That's how jazz got globalized. All began with Eisenhower in 1956. Wow, I, <laughs> I and, and I and I know a little bit about the jazz, and certainly they did. They they went out and 
and changed some minds about what was going what was going on in this country mm-hmm. and were able to speak their their the word the fact that you know they couldn't go you know down in parts of the south they couldn't go into the same bathrooms as a white man yeah uh, which you know it's maybe maybe that backfired a little bit <laughs> yeah, but they, there were two intentions right the united states is wanting to say say we're really nice to these folks right. but then when they got there they could tell the truth and so these african american so musicians yeah they saw it as a way of saying let us tell you the story and let us share our culture with you. They may say we have no culture. This is high culture, right? That's what Eisenhower said. <laughs> Sheila Walker, uh, thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate it. Very, very interesting. Uh, I know you're going to be on campus uh, all, all week. Uh, what, are, what are the films? If, if people are interested in seeing the films, what, what should they be looking for? Well, they can find two trailers, okay. three trailers in reality, on YouTube. Um, one film is called Scattered Africa Faces and Voices of the African Diaspora. That's based on a conference I gave uh, several years ago. And the one that I did for the United Nations is called Familiar Faces, Unexpected Places, A Global African Diaspora. So that trailer is available on YouTube in two, two formats. One is 90 seconds and the other is about five minutes. So that gives a, a better example. Sheila Walker, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks for joining us for WVYC's Perspectives. The program airs weekly on Mondays and Fridays at 9 o'clock. Public Affairs program is also available as a podcast at wvyc.podbean.com. Jeffrey Schiffman serves as the Executive Director of Perspectives. We hope you join us again for this in-depth look at the York College community.